0: Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on History.org. This is Behind the Scenes.
1: Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Today my guest is Ron Carnegie, who's a historic interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg. Ron, thanks for being with us. Certainly. I asked you here today to talk about the ratification of the Constitution. And I think it's an interesting idea because, for me anyways, I always think about the Constitution as is kind of always having been there. But we actually had a period in our history after the Revolution and before the Constitution when we really had kind of a pretty loose governance that wasn't working that well. Can you talk to me about what happened between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that we know today?
0: Well, it's, it's actually long, uh, a different period than that. The Articles of Confederation, which are the governing body or the governing rules that the United States was under Prior to the Constitution, wasn't even adopted until 1781. Um, not in 1776. There, there was no definition of what the federal government was from 76 until the adoption of the Articles in 81. There, it was wasn't clear at all in those first few years whether there'd be a federal government. We had a very very loose confederation of states, and that's all that existed. They. The Congress itself started to realize that wasn't working before the war was even over. But they were having trouble reaching any decisions. The the outcome of the war was still very, very unlikely. So the creation of a system of government wasn't working. They put it off for a number of years. Uh, Looking at it again in 78, uh, and that's when the articles are actually written as in 78. It takes until 81 for them to be adopted. And that speaks to one of the big problems of the Articles of Confederation. One of the reasons there's that big span of time in getting it adopted is it required too large a number of states to vote in favor of anything. That same problem is gonna make them very, very weak and make it very difficult to do anything when it's the governing body in those first few years of our, of our American Republic. The, uh, they also really restrict the power of the federal government. Uh, the, there's no executive. It's still uh, being driven by the Congress, by uh, the legislature. The legislature is given no authority to raise revenue. They cannot raise taxes. They levy imposts to individual states asking, requiring the states to give them money, but there's nothing to make the states do that. And because of this, they end up with very little, little money, little authority. Uh, During the uh, 1780s, uh, various states are entering into their own foreign treaties. They're charging the states around them uh, import duties, uh, sometimes very unfairly, to get trade advantages. Uh, There's a number of trouble like that that's going on in a time when there is severe economic crisis and the federal government really needs money to be able to pay the debts that it entered into in the war.
1: You said there's no executive. It seems like as we're a nation that's breaking with England, we're taking great pains not to create anything which could work like a king, which could yes. give somebody the power of a monarch.
0: It's a reaction to the uh, near absolute power that they viewed the king as having in England. Um, even in the British system, the king isn't, is, doesn't have absolute power, but he's involved in all the branches of government. He has far more authority uh, than, uh, than another executive would. and. Even outside of monarchies, it's very common in uh, in a republic to see an executive rise to power, become a demagogue, make him put himself up as uh, as a dictator. The guide that most Americans are looking at when they're creating their government here in the United States is Rome. They're looking at the Roman Republic, but the Roman Republic became an empire. The uh, the Caesars took over. that's a, that's a strong precedent, and they're aware of that. And so not only the event of the late war, but the models that they're following creating our government, they, um, they all have that tendency to be manipulated by a tyrant. And so there's a strong, strong fear of an executive office. That's going to be true when the Constitution's uh, created. It's one of the biggest dangers, the biggest challenges to seeing the Constitution ratified was that it did create an executive office.
1: So we've got the Articles of Confederation, Mm -hmm. but it didn't work.
0: They don't work because um, the states require too much. uh, There, Too many of the states have to agree for anything to pass, and the states aren't doing that. The states uh, are far more concerned with their local interests, uh, their own uh, situations. Uh, One of the arguments that's constantly made even today with the Constitution is that division between state power and state authority and federal authority. Well, under the Articles, all of that balance is leaning far over to the states. The federal government has almost no authority. It's very difficult to get any work done. The um, people who were against the idea of a a central government at all use its ability to make amendments to stop what power it did have, to reduce it even further. So the, uh, the government's ineffectual. It doesn't have the power or authority to do pretty much anything. It can't even raise money. Um, And without money, it can't pay for any of the things it needs to do. Um, This comes to a head in in Washington's mind, and he uses this as, as evidence for why we need a stronger government, when you start having bodies of men raising an armed rebellion against the new United States. The situation was really bad, really bad. So bad that a number of men who were driving forces during the revolution were beginning to believe that our experiment had failed and that a government had to have a monarch or a, ter- I don't want to use the word tyrant, uh, but a, a very strong executive, stronger than our presidency is going to be, uh, to move back to that older idea of, of an overruling uh, influential government who's responsible for all branches, like, a, like the king in England. Um, that's a scary thought to think that, that that's how bad the situation was, that the people who defended and fought for this, that some of them, we're now looking at it as a mistake. Um, That's one of the things that drives Washington out of his retirement, to get involved in seeing a new system of government created, because it terrifies him that that people who he respects are now considering returning to a monarchy.
1: So tell me about what happens when they decide the Articles of Confederation aren't working, they've got to get together and come up with a new plan. They're inventing a government that there's no model for in history.
0: And and that they have no authority for (laughs) uh, When they meet in Philadelphia, what their instructions actually are is to revise the Articles of Confederation.
1: And when we say they, who are we talking about?
0: Um, A number of deputies is what they were calling them. Deputies were chosen by the various states to represent in a smaller convention. Uh, In most cases, these men are members of the Congress. Uh, One of the most notable exceptions to that would be Washington. Washington was retired at the time, but he was sent as one of the, uh, the deputies for Virginia.
1: Washington's retired, but he's still probably the country's biggest celebrity. And his Mm -hmm. presence alone at the proceedings kind of lends them some credibility.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So what happened?
0: A few of them brought plans. Um, One of those is called the Virginia Plan. And that was brought by by Madison. It's the reason we view Madison as the father of the Constitution. Because the Constitution wasn't created by one man. Um, And we often refer to him as being its author. But in reality, government is compromise. And that's exactly what was happening in that convention. Um, But a lot of the compromises and the the mold that was followed was based on this Virginia plan that Madison brought, uh, with small alterations based on various compromises on numbers of votes and things like that.
1: You talked about compromise. I think so many of the men who gathered there, were there were such huge divisions that compromise, Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost an understatement when you talk about what they had to overcome to be able to to agree on a plan that they thought would work. There were divisions between North and South, between large states and small states, between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, people who felt like there should be a very strong central government, and people who felt like power should reside in the states.
0: I don't believe there were very many uh, Anti-Federalists represented in the convention. That's gonna play more of a part during the ratification process. Uh, but some of the other things you mentioned were, were huge issues. Um, I mean the, the compromise that's referred to as the great compromise, the biggest compromise, is directly based on what you were saying about large and small states, and that's how will the states be represented in the legislature. Uh, Small states wanted an equal vote. They wanted one vote per state, whereas large, heavily populated states, such as Virginia, want uh, representation by their population. We have a government that's made up basically of four parts the three branches, and one of those branches is divided into two. And then by the original constitution, every one of those groups was chosen in a different fashion and serves for a different term. So what that does is it means if you have any major change that, uh, that somebody wants to make happen, it's very difficult. It's difficult to achieve large-scale change. You have to get a consensus of, of four groups. So, so it's going to take uh, a lot of work, a lot of agreement, and some time. And that was, uh, that was the preserve, to make sure we don't enter into foolish changes, that we don't move too quickly, and that we consider things very well.
1: And we're talking there about the system of checks and balances. Mm-hmm. These people were falling over themselves to make sure that nobody could run away with power. Mm-hmm. So how, are all these, how do all these three branches work together to, to keep each other in check, to make sure that no one, no one part of that triumvirate um, has has the balance of power?
0: Well, they have to they have to keep an eye on, on one another, and the people have to keep an eye on all of them. It's well delineated in the Constitution what authorities or powers go to one another, but it seemed to be apparent even to Washington that those could be overstepped, because he warns us of that when he steps out of the presidency. He states in his uh, farewell address that we should never allow any branch of government to encroach upon the other branches because it creates despotism, it concentrates all the powers into just a few hands. Um, and he mentions that there, there very well may raise occasions where it seems like a good idea, like it'll be some short-term benefit or it'll move us forward or it might, uh, it might improve our safety and our defense. But, again, looking back to history and looking back to the Republic of Rome, it's usually by encroachment that free governments are destroyed. And he's speaking directly of of things like the makings of Caesars, because that's that's usually how how it happens. Usually, a free government gives away its authority, gives away its freedom, because they think it'll increase their security. And that's usually how Caesars became Caesars. How we got dictators.
1: One of the things that I that I like um, about the process of creating the Constitution is how ambivalent the creators were about what they had written. They really didn't have a whole lot of confidence that this Constitution was going to hold up for 20 years, much less 200.
0: Franklin wrote a letter that sort of mentions that. What he does in this letter is he he mentions that there's a lot of things he's not sure about, things that he doesn't agree with, things he thinks might be a mistake. But then, by the end of the letter, he's changed its tone. He starts to admit that even though he feels this way and that he has doubts, He's wise enough to know that a body of men have a greater wisdom than any one man. And that some of the things he doubts that the body has chosen are probably they're the, the body's choice, the convention's choice, is probably more accurate than his own. And that, to quote him and a quote that Washington himself used, that while our government may not be perfect, no more perfect government was ever created by man. Um... And I, I think that's a that letter should definitely be read by any, any American. It should be part of the reading that goes along with reading the Constitution that we do when we're in school, um, because it's a great reminder of what our government is. The United States is an experiment, and nobody knew if it would work or how long it would last. We are quick today to point out some of the errors, either the errors in the original framework of the Constitution or more typically errors in how it was viewed and how evenly applied it was to all of society, but that forgets that we are an ongoing experiment. And we aren't finished. We're still building, we're still improving, and we're still working on having the best government that a, that a nation can. have.
1: Ron, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org podcasts. Check back often, we'll post more for you to download and hear.